Jesus told the church to make disciples of all the nations. And for a long time in our nation, spreading the truth of the Bible and Christian teaching was easier than it is now. This is because being a Christian was mainly seen as a positive thing by our society. However, in recent years, our nation has changed and no longer views Christianity in a positive light. This means that if we stick to our old methods, they won't work. We won't reach the world and we'll grow increasingly frustrated. It's time for us to take an honest look at the situation facing us and to rethink how we interact with a world that now views our Christian faith with suspicion. This is the newly renamed Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckase, and my mission here is to help you to build a legacy where you, your kids, and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the answers to the questions the world is asking from the Bible and to see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. Today's episode is not only going to help you prepare to share and defend your faith yourself, but it will also set you up to pass on the faith to the younger generation so that they can build God's kingdom in the future and not miss anything that God has called them to in the years to come. My guest today is Aaron Wren. Aaron has discovered a three-part paradigm for understanding the relationship between Christianity and the culture from the 1960s until now. Aaron says that we've gone through three stages or worlds, and that we are now in the third world. This paradigm has been incredibly helpful to countless Christians, yours truly included, for understanding our times and how to live in these times as Christians. If you've ever felt like the odd man out because of your Christian faith or struggled to translate what you believe into language that your neighbors and coworkers would understand, you're really going to want to hear what Aaron has to say. Today, we're going to answer questions like, what are the three stages that the culture has passed through in terms of its relationship to the church, and which one are we in now? How exactly should we interact with a world that views Christian faith as a negative thing, and which of our methods really aren't working anymore? How can taking the long view, even a multi-generational view, be the best way for men to have hope in the face of a less Christian culture and even a less biblical church. What are the first steps towards revival today? How can you build mental toughness and adjust your risk exposure to fit the current situation? And what is one positive aspect of living in the negative world? If our discussion today raises any further questions for you, or if you just want to be able to talk about this more in depth, I want to make you aware of our free community. This is the group where you can join together with over 500 others who are on the same journey as you towards building a legacy for their families. You'll get biblical answers to questions and stuff to help you grow in your own understanding of theology and pass it on to the younger generation, as well as a fellowship of people to share ideas with, share skills, share practical help with. And I'm going to tell you more about this group and how to join at the end of the show. So now let's welcome Aaron Wren to the show. Aaron, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Right. Well, I really am a, someone who's had three different careers when you ask what I do. Uh, I started out uh, in Chicago working in management and technology consulting. 
So I was doing management consulting for about 15 years hmm. and ended up as a partner in a large firm called Accenture. And Pardon. then I radically transformed what I was doing to be essentially an analyst and writer on cities and urban policy, particularly in the Midwest. Ended up in New York City, an odd place to write about the Midwest from, but I was yeah. a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute there. Huh. And then I made yet another pivot uh, into a completely different career where I now write. I still write about cities, but I now pr primarily do writing and analysis on Christianity and culture with an emphasis on men's issues. So I got into that by starting a, a men's newsletter called The Masculinist, which was prompted by what I saw, which was that men not really going to church, but instead turning to all of these secular men's gurus, uh, which is easier to explain to people today. It was harder back then because now everybody's heard of Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Uh, but there are a ton of these guys out there. And like, why are men tuning into them? But they're not turning into the church or other institutions. And so that was really the root of my uh, entree into sort of the, the Christian space with a cultural angle. And I've, I've expanded from there. What year was that that you made that switch? When I started my Christian men's newsletter, it was probably around 2016. I think I started it in 2016. Okay. Why make that switch? to more, you know, the, the masculinist and the, the men's issues things? Well, I thought it was a really big gap. I really, after study, I actually did years of studying on this and personally transformed how I lived my own life in terms of thinking about manhood. And I really came to discover that a lot of what the church uh, was teaching, especially these evangelical, conservative evangelical churches, was just not accurate. I hate to say it. Uh, and so... Uh, I said, who's writing about this? Who's talking about this? And I couldn't find anybody who was doing it. And I really felt like there was almost an obligation to speak out. And so I uh, was originally debating what I wanted to do. First, I wanted to start a side gig that would have been a for-profit uh, media company focused on sort of uh, microbiome and intestinal gut health and all that stuff, which has oh, become, wow. also become very big. I said, well, I can do that to try to make an extra buck. Uh -huh. or I can weigh in on uh, what's going on in the church with, with men. And I, I sort of felt there was an obligation to do that because I, yeah, I felt that I had this insight and I was positioned to do it. Having started off in management consulting and essentially been able to become, you know, somewhat nationally known as a writer on cities and work for a think tank and be in major media, quote in all the major publications, writing for them. I had done that without going and getting a PhD or anything like that on it. So I was not intimidated by the idea of going into a new field where I was sort of an outsider without a lot of credentials because I'd already done that before and earned the respect of the people with the credentials in the marketplace. And so I felt, I, you know, I need to step up and do this because other people who are kind of writing in this space, it was very clear that they were not positioned uh, to really make an impact. And so that was sort of the genesis of it. I said, I'll try it for a year, see what happens. And uh, I actually didn't hit the number uh, that I thought it would be to, to keep it going. Mm -hmm. I said, I'll do it for a year. And if I get 500 subscribers to my newsletter through word of mouth, 
then I will keep going. Otherwise, I'll shut it down. I actually ended up with like 280-something. I made the huh. decision to shut it down. In fact, I already notified all my charter subscribers. And then Rod Dreer found one of my newsletters. Somebody sent it to Rod Dreer. And it's actually the original version of the Three Worlds of Evangelicalism piece huh. that's in First Things now. And he wrote about it and sent me about 1,500 subscribers overnight. <laughs> and so I had essentially uh, already kind of in the process of shutting it down when he, he sort of resurrected it and just have gone from there. Um, so what do you think of yourself as primarily? Are you are you a men's issue guy? Are you a, a political thinker, an, an urban studies guy, sociology guy, theology guy? What what, what uh, camp would you put yourself into if you, if you had yeah. to? It's interesting. I would say I'm a management consultant at heart today and that okay. I think about the world like a consultant from one of these companies would do. That's sort of my professional heritage. I do a lot of different things. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not limiting myself professionally as a consultant, but I do think our professional background deeply shapes how we see the world and think about the world. So someone who's trained as a pastor is going to see the world through that lens of being a pastor. Yeah. Someone who is an academic is going to see it through the lens of their academic profession, their academic practice. For me, being a consultant, uh, it helps me keep a wide lens and be very integrative in my thinking across many, many, many domains. And secondly, it's... Uh, helps me come up with frameworks to help people understand the world. Hmm. I'm less directive about telling people you should do this, you should do that. It's much more equipping people with tools and insights that they can use. And so taking something like Doug Wilson's empire up there and extracting out the structural elements that they've built and helping people see it through that lens, uh, through that own space lens, is a powerful way to think about them. Similarly to my framework that I've come up with around the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world to understand the different eras in terms of phases of Christian, of secular society's relationship to Christianity, that has really resonated with people. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily say you should do this, you should do that, although I'm not afraid to give sort of directive advice at times, but it's really like a tool or people say like, wow, that helps me understand the world. Could you flesh that out, how would you describe it? In the 1950s, we reached the high water mark of church attendance in U.S. history. About half of all people in the country went to church on Sunday every week. Since then, Christianity's status has sort of been in decline in society. Whether that be church attendance, whether that be various denominations, whether it be um, you know, the way Christian moral norms are perceived, we've been in a downward slide. And in that downward slide, we've gone through three distinct phases, which I label the positive, neutral, and negative worlds. And those refer to the way that secular society views Christianity. So the positive world, secular society viewed Christianity positively. This is the era that I say was pre-1994. And again, Christianity was seen as a social good, to be known as a good church-going uh, man, uh, meant you're an upstanding citizen of society, and Christian moral norms were also normative in society. In 1994 or so, we reached a tipping point, and we were no longer in the positive world, but a neutral world. 
how did you how did you come up with ninety four as the tipping point? Oh, oh. Uh, these are very imp- I would call them imprecise datings. Okay. Uh, but I picked nineteen ninety four. I thought the end of the Cold War was certainly significant. Nineteen eighty nine. You probably could have picked that okay. as a date, but I picked it because uh, primarily because it was the year Rudy Giuliani became the mayor of New York and really transformed cities in turbocharged cities. And so the rise of these urban areas was heavily associated, I think, with the neutral world, uh, particularly the way the uh, the church responded, evangelical church. Prior to to that time, there were essentially no conservative evangelical Christians in urban centers, very few. After that time, there was this influx of young educated people into cities, many of whom were already Christian. And so that created a new sort of urban Christian social base, uh, which was very different from the historic one. So in in a sense, I did sort of overlap changes in the Christian world with changes in secular society. Um, I think that, you know, the date is impressionistic, as I'd like to say. If you prefer (laughs) to pick 1989 uh, as the date, because that was the end of the Cold War, I think that would certainly be defensible. Yeah. It also made it uh, a twenty, made the neutral world last twenty years. So okay. I date the neutral Clean. world from two, 1994 to 2014, and I'm much clearer on dating 2014 because 2015 was the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision yeah. on gay marriage, and so I basically put 2014 right before that as the time that we tipped into what I then called the negative world which is where Christianity is no longer a positive. It's no longer a neutral. It's now viewed negatively. Yeah. And to be known as a Christian can actually hurt you socially in the elite ranks of society. And Christian morality is expressly repudiated. And in fact, it's now actually seen as a threat to the new public moral order yeah. uh, there. Uh, one of these internet uh, men's gurus uh, that I've mentioned, Mike Cernovich, he actually tweeted today, how would people react if you told them you became a born-again Christian versus if you told them you started practicing Zen Buddhism? Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting question. I think it yeah. shows people would definitely think worse of you for becoming a born-again Christian than for becoming a Zen Buddhist. And so oh, that says something about uh, our society. You know, uh, 1989, I just looked it up. That was the year that Tim Keller went and launched – he planted um, Redeemer Presbyterian. Right. And 2014, that was the year that Mars Hill Church, of course, located in downtown Seattle and with an empire stretching all over the West, uh, Western United States. Mars Hill really blew up in 2014. So the, those are some interesting benchmarks. You know, um, both of those guys, two different approaches to the urban church model, but – very much big on engaging the culture in cities, you know, reaching the unchurched. Yeah. In each of these worlds, there's been characteristic ministry strategies or approaches that the evangelical church has taken. Yeah, so in the positive world, there were two two strategies. One was the culture war strategy or the religious rights strategy. You know, guys like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, who wanted to take back the culture. Mm-hmm. They really emerged in the 70s. They sense this degradation in the status of Christianity, and they're like, we're going to fight back. A second group saw the same thing and said, we need to become more market relevant 
in order to reach people who are abandoning the church. And that was the seeker sensitive movement uh, pioneered by people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago or Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Orange County, California. And uh, those movements really dominated and characterized uh, the positive world. In the neutral world, there was this model I call cultural engagement. And that's a, a term that the people who practice it would very much tell you that they're doing is they're trying to engage culture rather than fighting with culture. They want to uh, sit down with the culture in a pluralistic public square and you know have a conversation, have a debate to articulate the truths of Christianity confidently but winsomely to look to affirm aspects of the culture as well as to critique aspects of the culture and essentially reaching the culture in that way. And it was a much more of an urban movement. Tim Keller is clearly the seminal figure of that, I think. Mm. You know, coming into New York City, being able to diagnose and understand that culture and figure out how do I articulate the gospel to the people of Manhattan? And he was extraordinarily successful at it. Uh, you know, yeah. hundreds of people uh, were essentially converted uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian, his church, in the uh, 1990s especially. And, and so he was, um, you know, he was quite successful in doing that in the neutral world. And yes, his, you could, if you, if you wanted to have an alternate universe of picking dates, you could have picked 1989 to, I think, 2016, is when he stepped down as senior pastor at Redeemer. Mm. You could have used those dates to, to calculate the, the neutral world. I would tell people, don't get hung up on dates. If you okay. prefer different dates, use your dates. That's what I'm saying. Okay. This is a tool. This is a tool. This is not Holy Scriptures there. I could use a little bit more help understanding negative world. What, what trends are you seeing right now? Uh, where are things headed? What are you, you know, What are you forecasting for the future of negative world? Well, it's really hard to see. We're in a dynamic time, uh, very hard to predict things. And, um, you know, I always like to tell people, January 1st, 2015, nobody in America would have predicted Donald Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. I mean, right. Two years later, he's being inaugurated as president. Right. Not even Donald Trump knew Donald Trump was going to be president <laughs> or even thought Donald Trump was going to be president Right uh, at, at that point in time. Who would have predicted in early 2020 this pandemic that was going to transform our world? So we're in this sort of unsettled time in which a lot of the rules uh, of our society, a lot of the things that we think about in our society are being rethought and reset. Uh, this is one of those kind of reset phases, uh, if you will. And the negative world is part of that, uh, perhaps. Uh, I was talking with someone else this morning, interviewed me on a podcast, and he mentioned reading John McWhorter's new book about uh, wokeness and says McWhorter dates the woke revolution to 2014. Huh. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I do think, you know, the negative world is in part a result of the loss of the culture war by conservatives and essentially the collapse of any sort of support for any sort of conservative vision of society in among elite sectors of society in the 2010s. And exactly when and how that took place, uh, not totally clear, you know, needs to be, there's a lot of things that need to be studied. Hmm. But, you know, essentially there was, 
you know, a collapse of any sort of conservative resistance. And since that era, since about 2014, essentially, you know, leftist elements have been running the field and they just keep going from strength to strength to strength. And, you know, even people of generally, you know, liberal center left tendencies are terrified of these people. You know, here, (laughs) here in Indianapolis, where I live, uh, this woman who was the head of our library system, uh, who had formerly been the most progressive city councilor, you know, over a decade ago or a decade ago, she had sponsored all of the ordinances to provide LGBT protections and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, she was at the head of the library and somebody on staff, just some random person, said she was running a plantation and she was essentially run out, tossed to the wolves. Tons of civic leaders in this town think it's terrible. Many of them are close personal friends of hers, but they're all too scared. They were all too scared to say it. Nobody, and I mean nobody, will stand against this stuff. It's uh, it's really incredible uh, to think, um, you know, again, whether you agree or disagree with any element of it, the fact is on a wide range of areas. So basically, it's not so much whether everybody's right or wrong or exactly what the position is. The key is there's no dissent allowed from anything. If you cross the line on any point, you're going to be, you know, attacked viciously as a horrible person and everybody will abandon you. Basically, they'll throw you to the wolves. Again, I do not think that will go on forever. I think at some uh, point, these things always burn themselves out. But what's on the other side of it? Um, We don't know. Right. What was on the other side of the French Revolution? Napoleon. So who knows what's going to be on the other side of this? I, but I always try to tell people there's no going back. You know, the question I like to ask people to get a sense of how well I think they understand the current moment, and just especially conservatives, I ask them this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is the Constitution? And if they say the Constitution is like a 7 or higher, they clearly don't get it, right? Because the Constitution's Why? well, the Constitution is dead and gone, right? And basically, it's been oh, dead don't and gone say that. Time. Come it's been on, dead and gone for a long time. Oh, and, why? how can you say that? Yeah, well, that's, that's the point. Um, you know, I they, guess I don't get it. I, I'm one of the guys. Yeah, enlighten me, help me out. So what I'd say is, you know, where did they find a right to gay marriage in the Constitution or a right to an abortion in the Constitution or rewriting these acts to different things? Again, even if you support these things, you know, the legal justification is flim-flam. You know, the Constitution is whatever five people on the Supreme Court say it is. Mm. And they make it up as they go along and they clearly are political. And if you think, if you're appealing to a document or a text uh, that says anything, you, you are really, not, you know, kind of naive, I think. Interesting. What happens is a group of people has acquired force, acquired power, and imposed a moral vision of society that they want. And the legal system of our country now conforms itself to that ideology and to that moral vision of society. Okay. Not the other way around. It's not that, well, there's the law. We all got to go along with the law because it's right. the law. Right. That's legacy thinking. Hmm. We don't live in a place that has the rule of law anymore. When you have prosecutors that just say, 
well, I'm just not going to prosecute crimes I don't feel like should be crimes. Right. right. Or when they say, you know, people who loot and burn downtowns, well, we're not going to prosecute any of them. But if you try to defend yourself or your property, we're going to throw the book at you. Yeah. You know, or, uh, you know, if, if you, um, you know, if you topple a statue, nothing, that's great. Sure. But, you know, if you burn a pride flag where you're probably going to go to prison for 10 years, which right. literally happened to people, like sentence, like long prison sentences. And so you say that, and but there's no meaningful rule of law in America today. And so you start, and you can say, oh, Aaron, you're overstating. And of course, like, you know, you can still go to court. Sometimes you can get your right, you know, you can get your rights vindicated. But as they yeah. say, the process is the punishment. But I think sure. the key is, the key is, it's like, you know, there's a projection here. It's like, oh, there's the, you know, there, there's this threat to our democracy. They love to talk about our democracy. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in democracy in any, right. any sense of the word. Democracy just means we get what we want or it's bad. Well, all of this speaks to what you said about the right or conservatives or the conservative Christian right essentially yeah. lost the culture war. I mean, what you're, the picture you're painting right now, Aaron, is pretty bleak. Yeah. I mean, you just said, if I understood, if I understood you correctly, what I heard you say was, look, the Constitution, it's dead, it's buried. And when you first started saying that, I'm thinking, wow, that's just, you know, what is that? Like pragmatism? Like they want to kill it. They've killed it. But so we can't bring it back. Is, is all this tied in with negative world uh, in terms of the church and the relationship between Christianity well, I think, and the I culture? think that it is because, um, you know, at some level, you know, because there's this essentially cultural hegemony now of the most kind of radical elements. Uh, and not to say that there's no pushback or there aren't occasional, you know, defeats for them or that they're all powerful or that the situation is hopeless. I don't believe in any of those things. But certainly they're free to go after the church yeah. in ways that they were not free to go after the church or Christians previously because institutional or uh, other sources of power constrain them from doing so. You know, public yeah. opinion. You know, now public opinion really doesn't matter uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, you know... Uh, it's just a different – so we've entered a new era. You know, we've entered a completely new era. And a lot of the things that we thought uh, don't really uh, don't really apply anymore. Okay. Which is not to say that this is, you know, uh, just this horrible dystopia. It's just different. It is more hostile in some respects. But it's a different environment that we have to orient to and navigate. And again, I'm not claiming that I have it all completely figured out. I think there's a lot that's very opaque about the way that our system functions. Uh, and studying that system and trying to understand better how it functions is part of the to-do for the negative world. But I think we have to sort of – we have to sort of orient ourselves to that environment. You know, for example, you go to a developing country where bribery is common – and you don't know how to navigate this world where you have to give small bribes to minor officials to get things done. I was just thinking about it. And that. it seems terrible. It seems yeah. awful. But in fact, that society functions just well once you understand the rules. And so I was now there's a, just a, thinking about that. Yeah. There's another set of rules. There's a new set of rules. And we have to learn to live in the new set of rules, not the old set of rules. And so much. And this gets even to where I was coming with um, you know, my work on men and the churches. The church likes to 
operate in some weird model where they don't recognize that the rules have changed. Uh, or, or political conservatives. There's a guy at National Review named Jim Garrity, and he did a Prager University video called The Sexiest Man Alive. And The Sexiest Man Alive was a guy named Ward Cleaver, uh-huh. who was the dad from a TV show in the 50s and 60s called Leave it to Beaver, which you may not remember. Oh, I, I, I used to watch reruns when I was yeah, a kid, Yeah, okay. Too. So, like, yeah. you know, I grew up watching reruns of stuff like that. A lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you need to be more like Ward Cleaver or all these great TV dads. That's what Talk we need. Talk about looking back. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's really interesting that nowhere in his video or nowhere anywhere in any of his writings that I've been ever to find, does he ever tell women to act like Ward Cleaver's wife, June Cleaver? Mm. Uh, and so that's why they, they, they want they want you to act like it's the 1950s and act like the rules that were in effect in the 1950s are like on the tablets that Moses took down from Mount Sinai. And you need to, to live by those rules when, in fact, those were cultural norms and the world has changed. And trying to act, you know, acting like a 1950s dad in this world is a recipe to have your life wrecked. Hmm. And... So that's where I say these people are totally detached from reality and they're not willing to take stock of the way that the world has changed. And that doesn't mean I would endorse, you know, the pickup artist world or, sure. you, know, the, the, you know, the video game world or those other worlds that people have today that our culture permits people to have. I think those are wrong, but we have to think about, wow, what does it mean as a man to live in today's world with today's dynamics and it's eminently yeah. possible to be a godly, successful, you know, healthy guy with a healthy marriage, but we're in a different world than we were back in the 1950s. And you can't run that old script. And so that's what I think has happened in this negative world is you've got people um, who were very steeped in these positive and negative world cultural uh, solutions. And they're just trying to run their old, they're trying to play, run their old playbook. And you know, the world has changed now when things are different. And we can respond, uh, I think, quite well to this new world in a lot of ways. Well, who is getting it right? How do we interact with the negative world, Aaron? I don't know entirely how to do it. Uh, I, I like to say I think I have a lot of the questions, but I don't necessarily have all the answers. I think unlike in these previous worlds, it's not going to be one or two different answers. It's going to be a multiplicity of answers. It's going to require a lot of trial and error. It's probably going to require um, uh, new generations of leaders. For example, I am somewhat sympathetic to uh, Rod Dreher's Benedict Option as a concept. Um, I would probably uh, go through and rewrite things in a very different way uh, than him. But if I think the meta thesis or the big picture thesis of the Benedict Option is the church uh, has essentially relied on secular culture as essentially a support system for, you know, inculcating morality and like, you know, uh, building up a lot of the supports that the church needed. And that's no longer going to be there. The church is now weak. Uh, you know, people don't necessarily even believe in like Christianity as it's traditionally understood because it's moralistic therapeutism. And therefore, churches need to take much more of a sense of personal ownership over catechesis, community formation, uh, creating all of its own internal supports, 
uh, et cetera. And this is what Doug Wilson and the Moscow Idaho people have done well. Hmm. They not only have a church and they not only have a school and they not only have a university and a media company and all of that stuff, which people traditionally do, but they own a lot of businesses and yeah. they own a lot of real estate. Uh, and they really created infrastructure that sustains their community and enables them to thrive, even in a very hostile college town environment. Yeah. It's, a, it's an important model to study. I primarily classify them as culture war people because their MO is fighting with people and controversy. Yeah, fight, laugh, they, feast. Fight, laugh, feast. I say that their social network is called Fight, Laugh, Feast. Fight is literally the first word in their identity. Right. And so that's very deeply ingrained in how they think about the world. Um, whereas I think attempting to directly fight in that way is really less the way to go. And I don't want to be too prescriptive on that front. It probably is good that there are people who are still engaging in that sort of traditional activism. It just cannot be the normative pattern in the way that it was, say, back in the 1980s. So you do see that as a more traditional approach, what they're doing? Well, I see. I certainly see their, you know, high confrontation fight with the culture approach as being um, more traditional. But I think the actual like infrastructure they built behind it is quite different and quite relevant to the negative world. Okay. So a lot of the uh, people who got big as sort of personalities in the uh, in the positive world, you know, they had their little Christian empire that they built. Right. You know, but they didn't own like, a, you know, they didn't own the coffee shops and uh, the burger bar and the and the uh, pizza place and the high tech company. Yeah. And, you know, the media company that does deals with Netflix and Amazon. Right. You know, this is this is just a much more substantive vision of a community. It really is a thick community uh, in terms of, um, you know, how they operate. You know, and they've got, you know, lots of families and lots of kids. And it's just a very different, uh, it's a real community. Yeah. It's not just Doug Wilson, online influencer, who's right. making a lot of money like a YouTube star. Okay, there's like real substance there. So that's what you mean by behind. thick community. Yeah, I mean, if you go, and again, I would just refer people. Uh, which you can put in the show notes. I refer people to my uh, write-up on Own Space, which talks a lot about the uh, attributes of Doug Wilson in that environment. Does anything frustrate you about the way that the church is interacting with negative world? Well, again, I just think people have not taken the measure of this new world, and they're essentially doubling down on what they were doing before, and it's not working. And it's causing a lot of deformation. Um, as I like to say, that the strategies are deforming. And it's causing a lot of conflict, uh, and kind of intra-evangelical conflict. So, uh, you know, I do think there's some problems. There's problems there and uh, how it's been done. And, you know, I think at some level, once you built your whole career and your whole ministry on a particular approach... It's very hard to change that, uh, and particularly for the cultural engagement people hmm. to come into this negative world and say, guess what? We're not really going to be able to engage with the culture 
because the culture is giving us a my way or the highway ultimatum. They're not going to treat us with respect that they used right. to treat us unless we say the things that they want us to say. That's a very bitter pill to swallow for someone whose entire ministry has been built on being able to get a hearing and articulate the gospel in that cultural context. And so I do think it, it affects other people differently, and it and it makes it very hard for them to change. Um, you, you know, we, we're all, you know, I've, I've read all the motivational people about limiting beliefs. We can't have limiting beliefs, you know. But the reality is reinventing yourself is extremely hard. As someone mm-hmm. who's changed careers twice yeah. and have seen people change careers, and, you know, I'm pretty talented, and it was audaciously difficult to do what I did. Mm-hmm. And people used to come to me uh, when I was doing my city's work and say, I want to talk to you. I want you to tell me how I can be like you. And the only thing I can just tell them is, don't. Don't do that. Don't do it at all. You know, I mean, in retrospect, you know, if you had to say, Aaron, you know, you would have been far better off just staying in the technology management consulting world. I'd probably be retiring, mm. you know, in the next year or so. And, uh, you, you know, so so it's like it's so difficult to change what you do. And, um, you, you know, so there's that. Yeah. So it becomes, uh, yeah, I think it's a challenging environment. I think it's a challenging environment. What do you say to dads and aspiring fathers who are just worried about what feels like a decline, what feels like a less Christian culture and even a less biblical church? Well, I think they're right about that. Uh, but I think we can't give into a sense of fatalism. Hmm. And uh, one of my uh, friends likes to talk about pragmatism as the great disease of the Midwest. He says, pragmatism killed Michigan. I'm like, oh, tell me more about that, Dwight. And he said, basically, here's pragmatism. Pragmatism says, here are my two hands, and here's what I see in front of me. And what pragmatism says, what can I do with my two hands with the things that are right in front of me? That's very limiting. Yeah. Vision. You know, we took a guy like Steve Jobs. He didn't think that way. He's like, I want products that are insanely great. If you look at Elon Musk, he's like, we're going to Mars. Yeah. And if I have to reinvent the whole space industry to get there, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the audacious thing that we don't know how to do. And economically, that attitude is one reason that you know, the Midwest went into tremendous economic decline and California became came the winners. The people who, who have the audacious, uh, very non-pragmatic dreams live primarily on the elite cities of the coasts. Right. And so I think that uh, this idea that you start, you start looking in your little box and you look at what you see and you say, you start thinking it's hopeless, but there's no room for God to show up. Hmm. And that uh, in that world, you're like, wait a minute, there's somebody up there who actually is sovereign and therefore things can happen that you have no idea could even happen. Uh, you know, when I, one of the things that I kind of went through, as I said, I went through this kind of period of personal transformation. Mm-hmm. 
you know, before I started my newsletter and you know, did some research after that. And, um, you know, I went through a phase where my life was really in a bleak spot. And then just one day, it was almost as if, I mean, this is not literally God saying this, okay? I'm not saying God talked to me. What I'm basically saying is it was yeah. almost as if God were saying, now, Aaron, let me show you the answers to questions you did not even know you were supposed to be asking. Hmm. One of the things I discovered is that I had a magnesium deficiency that had caused a low-grade, lifelong depression. I had never really been clinically depressed, but I always had a sort of a glass half-empty and negative outlook on life. Hmm. And it's like, I, I mean, you often hear people uh, like this with low-grade depression. It's as if you're like 2040 or 2050 vision, but you don't know it. And then one day you go to the eye doctor and they give you glasses and you put on these glasses and everything is just dialed in. It's yeah. like, wow, I had no idea that the world was like that, was that sharp. And so it's like that was something that that was a something that had never even occurred to me, you know. And, yeah. um, and so you start thinking about I've had so many things like that happen or out of the blue, uh, something that didn't even seem like a possibility becomes a possibility. And so I think that's one of the most important things to do is to keep a morale up and yeah. not to spend all of our time. It's important to analyze. And I'm, I'm an analyst because that's what I do. Right. But not let our mind become the measure of all things. As, uh, you know, as the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding because our understanding is too limited. Right. And so that's very important. Another guy says we have to take a generational perspective. You know, the people who started building the cathedrals of Europe started building them knowing that they would never be able to complete those cathedrals in their lifetime. Mm. Um, there's some old proverb about people, old men planting trees under whose shade they will never sit. Yeah. And we have a very us-focused point of view. Uh, we don't have a generational perspective in which we're looking beyond our lifetimes. So maybe the great, you know, restoration, reformation, or whatever you want to call it that you're mm -hmm. looking for doesn't happen in your lifetime. Probably won't happen in my lifetime. I probably won't see the end of the story. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. You know, a lot of the things that have happened in our society, in terms of these sort of leftist things, were things that had germinated in the minds of people decades and decades previously, and they never lived to see them come to pass, but they did. So keeping from becoming paralyzed by fatalism, um, you know, I use the example of, um, you know, Christians in Egypt or the Middle East. You know, mm -hmm. the, the Arab invasions, the Muslim invasions of the 600 700s took over that thing you know what? 10% of Egypt is still Christian. Yeah. And yeah, the Coptics. I mean, they've been living in negative world for They've been living in negative world for, they've been, they've been a long time. Yeah. And right. they're like, well, we're still here. Wow. And you could say, well, that's not an ideal circumstance. Certainly, you know, you don't want to become second class citizens and all that. But this idea that like, oh, well, you know, it's the last, this is a book, the last pagan generation, the last pagan generation, we're all gone. It's, it's you know, the light's out. Hmm. Well, maybe that will happen. You know, uh, it's possible that that will happen, but that's not fated to happen. And one of the great 
weapons that our society has, its superpower in some respects is the aura of inevitability that clings to it. This idea that you're on the wrong side of history, mm-hmm. that there's a history is a line and it's going in a direction and you're just on the wrong side of that line. It's like pagan his- Calvinism. I think history teaches us something very different, which is that empires rise and falls, that there's nothing new under the sun, uh, that uh, perhaps we won't, we're not stuck in an endless cycle of repeating, but there are cycles and um, the pendulum does shift. And, you know, again, we're never going back to the 50s. Probably don't want to go back to the 50s, but things could be much, much better uh, in America uh, than they yeah. are today, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't give up on that. That's one thing I would say. Just keeping keeping your morale high is very important. <clears throat> what do you see as being the first steps into oh, the word that you used? Um, well, let's say we want to see revival. You know, we want to see reformation, and maybe we understand it's going to take multiple generations, but we're living in this generation. We're living in negative world. What do you see Aaron as being the best first steps for Christians who want to take that generational view? Is it local government? Is it the church? Is it your own household? Right. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, the Bible is clear that, you know, we're first to take responsibility for ourselves in the okay. sense of, you know, take the log out of your own eye first, then you will see clearly. So we need to look to ourselves. We need to make sure that we are people that are above reproach. Um, you know, as I like to say, are we people who, you know, love the Lord with our whole heart, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves? Are we people of uh, repentance who are seeking for universal obedience to God's laws? And are we, like Paul, holding firm to the whole counsel of God. And so I think those are things we can look at in our own life. We can take responsibility for our household, um, et cetera. I think one particular thing that's especially related to Christian ministry, but I think is clear for men as well, is that we just need to be a lot stronger and a lot tougher. Hmm. You know, I use the example of Paul. One of the underappreciated excellences of Paul is just how tough that guy was. Yeah. So you go into, I think it's 2 Corinthians. He's going through all the things that happened. I was shipwrecked, beaten, robbed, stoned, you know, given 39 lashes here. Uh, you know, I was in danger. I wasn't getting any sleep. I was out in the cold. I was. He's going through all this stuff. I mean, Paul was literally stoned and left for dead. And so when you think about that, we like to quote his thing in First Timothy about, you know, bodily discipline is of little profit, you know, compared mm. to, to – and certainly compared to spiritual strength, physical strength is not as important. And yet Paul's physical strength is the only thing that kept him alive. I mean, again, right. here's a guy who was stoned and left for dead. They thought he killed him, and that's how tough he was, that he yeah. survived all of those physical challenges, including like being – you know, going two weeks without food in one of his shipwrecks. Yeah. Okay. Secondly, if you continue in that passage, you see how mentally tough he is. Mm. That he's 
talking about all the pressure, the weight of the pressure bearing down upon him, the concern for all the churches, concern for all the people who are being led into sin. Look at a book like Second Timothy. Okay, Paul in Second Timothy, he's in prison. He's being treated as a common criminal. He says he's going to be executed. Most of his friends have abandoned him. Yeah. And yet, what is he doing? I got to write to Timothy. I got to help out Timothy. I got to preach the gospel at court. I got all this stuff going on. I mean, he's not sitting there feeling sorry for himself. Oh, no, so he's Paul a beast. was mentally, mentally tough. And, you know, I would suggest that, you know, maybe physical toughness is more applicable to maybe a country like China, where Christian pastors risk being thrown in prison like right. Paul. They really do risk physical trials. But in America, you know, these sort of things that challenge you mentally and emotionally are uh, very much coming to the fore. Uh, particularly the last couple of years have been a time of enormous stress for Christian ministers. Uh, conflict is coming and they can't avoid it. Yeah. Just think about the COVID response. Do we require masks? Do we not require masks? Do we meet in person? Do we not meet in person? Whatever they do, they're going to have horrifically angry people. Mm-hmm. Coming after them. That's why this Barna survey was just finding that nearly, you know, 40 something percent of all pastors have thought about leaving the ministry <laughs> yeah, in the last yeah. year. I mean, there are premier congregations in America where, I mean, pulpits that you would kill to get, that most people would never dream that their mm-hmm. career would go so well that they would get a be the pastor of that church. Or the pastor just resigned because that Redeemer in New York's East Side congregation, the pastor just one day said, I got to resign. I just, mm. I don't feel this is, this is right. And he, he didn't do anything wrong. That's not like, it's not like resigning to spend more time with your family. I mean, from, you know, this guy's from everything I hear, I literally stepped down. One reason, again, I don't know specifically what his case was, but one reason these people are quitting is that the stress is so high. And therefore, developing that sort of mental and emotional fortitude to be able to survive the stresses of ministry, which are much higher today than they have been for a long time, is really important. The pastor of my church uh, one Sunday, here's a guy who's like in his 60s, like early 60s. Okay. I would say he's at the height of his powers. I mean, nothing phases this guy. He just just seems like the master in command. Hmm. And he was t- telling the sermon about how he's mentoring a younger guy. And his younger guy's like, man, you know, I'm really struggling in my ministry. Things are so difficult here with this COVID and all this stuff. And he said, I'm making, make it. my pastor said, you know what I told him? I said, in my 40 plus years of ministry, the last two years have been the most difficult of my career. Wow. And that just stuck in my mind. Like, here's a guy who's like, been there, done that, I've seen it all. Yeah. And gone in difficult circumstances. Nice, like saying, hey, the last two years have actually been my most two difficult years ever. People are feeling that pressure. And so I think, you know, it's going to affect all men. It's especially going to affect people in the ministry. So if you don't have the mental fortitude to be able to to thrive in a high conflict, stressful environment, it's going to be tough. And that's where, you know, in the positive world, in the neutral world, the pressures were much less intense. In the negative world, the pressures are going to be much more intense. How do you build that mental toughness? 
that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I call you up when you know, but like you get you got to kind of lean in, to, as they say, to the into the awkward, into the discomfort, okay, in, into the risk. It's like like any. How do you build physical strength? You go to the get, gym, you, pick up the weights. You get you get out of the gym, you pick up the weights, you get out of the squat bar, yeah, and the first day you about fall over when you're doing 65 pounds. Right, you're like, right. what? I can't do this. Yeah. And eventually, if you keep doing it over and over and over again, but you have to engage in the stress, you know, in a certain way. And you also, you know, you have to be, you have to be in prayer. Uh, mm. You have to be, definitely have to be in prayer. You have to be taking care of yourself physically through sleep, diet, exercise. You have to make wise decisions about, uh, you know, managing your time. You need to have a band of brothers and counselors around you and people who can encourage you. Mm. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, it. You know, it helps to it helps to have some, you know, some patrons or some sponsors that, you know, have your back. Definitely. Um, you know, it probably means um, it probably is going to mean, um, you know, thinking about how to calibrate your life in ways that reduce your risk a little bit. Maybe you are more mm. of a bivocational uh, minister, even if your your church could afford to pay you a full time salary, maybe you're in the marketplace, so that you have income and things that are not as dependent on uh, this ministry. You go well. I mean, too much. So many pastors are dirt poor, and they have families. Yeah, and you know that puts them in a very vulnerable position uh, in terms of dealing with a lot of this congregational conflict and the stress yeah, could be there. Point. You know, yeah. maybe if you're in a more of a, you know, maybe you're not in a truly bivocational, uh, situation where you're really primarily in the marketplace and then just pastoring on the side, but mm-hmm. maybe you do have a foot in the marketplace. You know, there's a guy, uh, he's a really great, uh, guy, uh, C.R. Wiley. Oh yeah. He's written mm-hmm. some good books, man of the house, uh, the household, household and war for the, the cosmos. cosmos. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he talks about his life. He's, he and his family have built up a little real estate business. Mm-hmm. And so he's got income from real estate that he, is, he and his family have built over the years and, you know, different things that they've done. And that gives him, you know, some protection from just like, man, if this congregation doesn't like me and I'll lose my job, I'm left eye and dry. So thinking there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And it's not even it's not just a matter of, um, well, you have to do this. It's about it's about wisdom. It's about taking the risk and putting yourself out there. It's about finding the right path for yourself. Again, some things I say, pray more. That's like an e- that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, but, but there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things. But I think this idea of being being tougher and thinking about your risk exposure and things of that nature is going to be much bigger. You know, some people uh, need need to take more risk. I'm someone who needs to take more risk. Probably. Interesting. How so? Uh, well, well, just in the sense that I need to be maybe a little more bolder in my writings. I, I try to be, you know, I try to be so fair sometimes that I, uh, you know, I'm afraid to be too critical or, you know, maybe sometimes I pull my punches a little bit. Sure. Uh, but maybe other people need to lower their risk profile. Okay. Um, you know, and say, how do I de-risk in areas one, two, or three so that I can channel the risk that I do take into my ministry? Oh, yeah. um, and thinking about uh, thinking about how you know where you're where you're taking risks, and um, so I do you know I think uh, I think that's going to be key for people who go into especially vocational ministry. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, anything else you want to leave our listeners and viewers with? Something that you know, some uh, a pebble to put in their shoe before we go. 
here's one for you. If you go to the New Testament, it does seem to suggest that the people who, you know, experience, you know, persecution, you know, you, you know, you know, rejoice and be glad for your reward in the kingdom is great. Mm-hmm. And today, there are actually more opportunities to earn rewards, to store up treasure in heaven, mm-hmm. than there probably were back in the 1950s. Yeah. And not, not to say that every generation doesn't have it, but not every person and not every time and not every church is given you know equal amounts of talents, as it were, or opportunities and, you know, we're being given some opportunities. Hmm. We're being given opportunities to be faithful uh, in trying times that maybe some other people didn't. And so yeah. if you truly think about storing up treasures in heaven, then this could be a great time to be alive. That's really helpful. And, um, you know, I know a lot of guys who are listening to this, um, they are kept up late at night and, and it's on their mind during the day, the, the changing landscape. And, you know, I think that your three world, um, analysis paradigm, I, th- I do think it's, it's very helpful for, for beginning to think about navigating it. And so, um, you know, anyone who hasn't already listened to Aaron's podcast, definitely check out the Aaron Wren show. I believe Aaron Wren, you just changed yeah. the name of it. Oh well, yeah, the Aaron Run Show. You can find it on Apple Podcast, or you can find it find me on YouTube. But yeah, so I've got primarily today. I have a Substack newsletter, AaronRen.substack.com, A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.substack.com, and then I have a podcast and uh, slash YouTube channel. Those are the two main things that I do. My AaronRen.com site is still there, but it's mostly my older urban writings that I leave up for people who still want to find them because a lot of people like to refer back to old pieces that I've written Yeah, uh, because there's a lot of evergreen content on there. People still email me, hey, I remember you wrote something back in like 2009. Can you help me find this? And so I got to like help them find what, what they're looking for. Above all, get on my newsletter, aaronren.substack.com. Mm-hmm. Sign up for free. There's tons of free content. There is a paid tier, but you don't need to sign up to that to get my main newsletter and all the other things. Well, Aaron, you've given us a lot to think about. So thank you so much. Thank you. So now, you know, since about 2014, we've been in what Aaron Wren calls negative world. It's now no longer viewed as a good thing to be a Christian. How should we interact with negative world? Well, not by looking back to the 1950s and clinging to old methods that used to work when society viewed Christianity more positively. Instead, we need to build mental toughness, strengthen and develop thick communities within the church, and we need to acquire our own owned space and not to rely on the world's support systems as much as we have in the past. This is going to take a lot of trial and error and a lot of work, and we must not lose hope in the process. We looked at how a long multi-generational perspective on the future can really bring meaning to the small steps that we have to take today, like similar to how a person building a cathedral that he's never going to worship in is doing that with a multi-generational hope that his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren would be able to worship in that cathedral. And he's really doing it for them, doing it for the future, doing it in faith, ultimately to the glory of God. So what are the first steps towards revival today? First, take responsibility for yourself. We saw that. It's important to take the log out of your own eye, 
very biblical advice. Love the Lord, love Jesus Christ, love your neighbor, hold firm to the counsel of God, Aaron said, and work on becoming stronger and tougher. And if you need an example, look at the Apostle Paul. How can you build mental toughness and adjust your risk exposure to fit your current situation? Begin, Aaron says, by leaning into the awkwardness and the discomfort. Don't be afraid of risk. And I really liked how he said that. You know, it's like going to the gym. You start small, start with small weights, and you build up. And by the way, speaking of going to the gym, that's not just a metaphor. Actually, go to the gym, work out, get tough, get physically and mentally tough, and find a band of brothers who can counsel you. This has been huge in my own life. Friends who have your back. And if you can, get sponsors and supporters, patrons who have your back. You might be over-reliant on certain people in one area of your life. You may need to reduce that risk and become a little bit more self-reliant. And you might need to faithfully increase your risk in others. Look, the Lord Jesus went to the grave and came back for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. The Bible says he did that while we were weak. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the grave and returned to heaven. Jesus has already faced death and we're with him. He conquered death. There is literally nothing this world can throw at us that it didn't already throw at Jesus. And Jesus walked out of the grave having conquered it. It's from Jesus that we draw our strength. You want to be mentally tough? Trust in Jesus. Spread the message of the Bible unashamedly build those communities, strengthen one another, and get the word out. And then watch God's spirit transform your mind as he transforms the lives of the people that you share with who believe, who come to faith. And finally, what is one positive aspect of living in a negative world? Well, Aaron said this, and quite honestly, I agree. Today, there are more opportunities than ever, perhaps, at least in our area, our culture, to earn rewards for suffering and persecution. I'm talking about eternal rewards. And Aaron said it best, this could be a great time to be alive. I think that's great. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Aaron Wren's newsletter. You can do that by going to aaronren.substack.com. And I promised I would tell you about this. If you want to build a worldview legacy for your family, then join the Think Squad group now so you can become the worldview leader that your family and church need for this moment, right now. All you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D, all one word. Answer the short membership questions. I think there's three of them, and that's all it takes. Thank you so much for listening to Worldview Legacy. Yes, we changed the name. I hope you guys like it. Thank you to Aaron Wren for joining me today. And this episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekase, and is a production of the Think Institute. To find out more about the Think Institute or to join our team and support us financially and prayerfully, go to thethink.institute. Now let's hear that theme song one more time. <laughs>